Tragedies in Thailand and Indonesia, Thailand legalizes abortion, and Malaysia finally ratifies the CPTPP. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Karen Lee, and today is October 13th, 2022. On today's show... Part of telling China's story are these deliberate efforts, very concerning ones, to conceal human rights abuses within China and also outside of China. And it's something that they're very willing to expend resources on. In Indonesia, in Malaysia, where there are large Muslim populations, China has attempted to portray an image of Xinjiang that is much more favorable than international media would allow. That was B.C. Han discussing Beijing's media influence in Southeast Asia. Thank you for joining us here today to learn more about this important topic. But first, the headlines. Today to help me read the headlines, we have Ike Barish in the studio. Ike is an intern with our Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative here at CSIS. Ike, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We're so glad we could have you on during your last week. How has your summer with us been? It's been a great, amazing experience here. I've loved every minute of it and I'm sad to be leaving. Glad to hear. Before we get into the news from the past two weeks, we want to preface that the first two stories this week are upsetting and violent for any listeners who might want to pause and skip forward. I think that we need to start with the tragic mass shooting in Thailand last week. On October 6th, a former police officer fired on a daycare facility in Nongbua Lampu province, killing 24 children. According to local police, he then fled and fired upon additional victims on his way home before killing his wife and son and taking his own life. In total, the incident left 37 people dead, making it the deadliest shooting in Thailand's history. We want to offer our deepest condolences to the victims, their families, and everyone affected by this shocking tragedy. Even though an estimated 15% of Thai citizens own a firearm, a high ratio compared to other Southeast Asian countries, gun control in the country has been relatively lax, until now. Police identified the shooter as a former police sergeant who was fired earlier this year for drug possession. Prime Minister Prayut chan cha has called for law enforcement agencies to tighten gun ownership rules and crack down on drug use. When this story first broke in Thailand, people quickly mobilized to donate their blood to the closest hospital, which announced soon after that the donations enabled it to care for the wounded. Thanks for that uplifting end, Karen. Unfortunately, we have to move into another serious story from the region. At least 131 people were killed and 547 injured in a stampede and riot at a soccer match in Malang, East Java on October 1st. The incident, which has now been deemed one of the world's worst stadium disasters, began when supporters of the losing home team invaded the field prompting police to fire tear gas in an attempt to control the situation. Thousands of people evacuated their seats due to the smoke and were trampled or crushed against walls and metal gates. And if I remember correctly, Ike, using tear gas for crowd control is banned by FIFA, the International Federation of Association Football. And FIFA also mandates that stadium exits have to be unobstructed at all times. As fans tried to flee the riot, they encountered several locked exits and bottlenecks, which fueled panic and culminated in the deadly stampede. Considering this tragedy could have been avoidable with better crowd control and stricter safety standards, have there been talks on which parties should be held accountable? Well, Karen, as part of a national investigation now unfolding in Indonesia, six people are facing criminal charges. The suspects include three police officers over their use of tear gas, the head of the organizing committee, and the chief security officer of the home club, 
Arima FC, all have been charged with negligence causing death, which carries a maximum five-year prison sentence if found guilty. President Joko Widodo confirmed that the country is working closely with FIFA to improve its soccer management and that FIFA will not be imposing sanctions on the country. This certainly comes at a bad time given that Indonesia is due to host next year's FIFA Men's Under-23 World Cup. It is also bidding to host the 2023 AFC Asian Cup, but has seen its chances diminish in favor of South Korea and Qatar in light of the stampede. The implications on the reputational and economic fronts, especially at a time when Indonesia is growing its international stature, are critical. Thank you for staying with us as we covered those two tragic but important stories. Turning to something slightly more positive, Malaysia ratifying the CPTPP. Karen, would you like to walk us through that? I'd be happy to. For anyone unfamiliar, CPTPP stands for the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, essentially what followed the Trans-Pacific Partnership after President Trump withdrew the United States from the agreement. On September 30th, Malaysia became the ninth country to ratify the free trade agreement, which will take effect in the country in late November. Malaysia's Ministry of International Trade and Industry predicts that the country's trade will reach over $655 billion by 2030 under CPTPP. That represents a potential $175 billion increase over eight years. CPTPP will allow Malaysia to access huge markets in Peru, Mexico, and Canada, and vice versa. And beyond trade, Malaysia's accession to CPTPP also has the potential to improve its supply chain resilience. Stakeholders like the American Chamber of Commerce in Malaysia and the Federation of Malaysian Manufacturers have both supported CPTPP for that reason, since it lowers manufacturers' dependence on any one market for production inputs. As a result, production becomes more resilient to shocks because manufacturers can turn to other suppliers in new markets. For even more updates on Malaysia, check out this week's newsletter. But enough on econ. Ike, want to cover our last story for this week? Sure thing, Karen. The Thai government announced that it will be legalizing abortion up to 20 weeks, relaxing people's access to previously restricted medical procedures. The procedure would still need to undergo consultation with a medical practitioner and be conducted by a medical professional. Previously, abortion was punishable by either a fine of up to 10,000 baht, approximately $265, or six months in prison, or both. Thailand's constitutional court struck down statutes in the criminal code banning abortions in 2020 and again in the following year passed a legislation that legalized abortion on request until the first trimester or the 12th week of pregnancy. That's the incremental systematic change we love to see, especially with regards to women's rights. Finally, we also want to note that the Biden administration hosted the first ever U.S. Pacific Island Country Summit in D.C. from September 28th to 29th. For more details on the summit's implications and the Pacific Partnership strategy, check out the critical questions analysis by CSIS experts Charles Edel, Christopher Johnstone, and Greg Poling on our website. And that's it for our headlines. Ike, thanks for stopping by. My pleasure, Karen. Hi, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Southeast Asia Radio. As usual, I'm joined by my co-conspirator, Alina Noor. Hello again. And today we have a very special guest, B.C. Han. B.C. is joining us uh, to talk about a recently published report from Freedom House, on which B.C. was one of the authors. This was the Beijing's Global Media Influence 2022, in which Freedom House uh, authors, working with local authors in 30 countries, did country-by-country analysis of Chinese influence operations, traditional media, social media, 
and so on. And BC teamed up with three authors in Southeast Asia to write the chapters on the Philippines, Malaysia, and Indonesia. And to give a shout out to those authors, some of whom are our friends, we had Mohammed Zulfikar Rahmat for the Indonesia chapter, Benjamin Lowe for the Malaysia chapter, and Camille Elamia for the Philippines chapter. And then the overall material was lead authored by Sarah Cook, right? Yeah. Okay, so all of that out of the way, it is a, let's say, robust report. And I encourage people to dive in. There's a lot there, um, especially if you're going to try to read all 30 country chapters. But BC, you wrote the three on Southeast Asia, which is what we're here to talk about. So what was the big takeaway for you from Indonesia, Malaysia, and the Philippines? So first of all, I want to note that the coverage period for our reports was 2019 to 2021. One takeaway was that unlike most countries we studied in this global report, in these three Southeast Asian countries, we haven't really seen any major changes in the intensity of tactics of Chinese media influence from before to after the coverage period. I think this is partly because China is not really a new actor in the region. Southeast Asia has long been in China's shadow, and there's been ample time to develop pushback in these countries. In Indonesia, we did see two new content sharing agreements between Chinese state media and local media outlets during the coverage period. And we also saw significant efforts from the Chinese state in terms of appealing to the Muslim population in Indonesia, which also occurred in Malaysia. We also saw some disinformation campaigns in the Philippines and Malaysia, which we really didn't see before 2019. Something else that really stood out was the diversity of pushback from the public in these countries, as well as from political actors. So despite their strong economic ties to China, all these Southeast Asian states do not want to appear as if they're favoring China over the U.S. In the Philippines, we saw members of the public push back against Chinese cultural programming on television or radio. Uh, People saw it as the Chinese state exerting their propaganda arm, even though some of it came from the Chinese Filipino community rather than the Chinese state. And this led to the cancellation of these programs. One of the biggest issues in the region in terms of China, and I think, Greg, you could definitely speak a lot to this, is the South China Sea. And that has led to a lot of anti-China sentiment in all these countries, particularly the Philippines, where the effects on Filipino fishermen really struck a chord with local communities. And so when the Chinese state emphasizes narratives that align with Beijing's preferred line on the South China Sea, it's not very effective. BC, I guess... For those who may be hearing about this report for the first time, can you just describe for us what the report means by influence operations? Like, What kinds of activities fall under this term? So we divided media influence efforts into five separate categories. First, propaganda, which includes anything from content sharing agreements to journalist junkets. Second, disinformation campaigns, which includes the use of fake accounts or networks to boost narratives, as well as other attempts to knowingly spread false information. Third, censorship and intimidation, which includes pressure exerted on media outlets to avoid lines of coverage. Fourth, control over content dissemination infrastructure, which refers to when a Chinese-based company owns infrastructure to distribute content which can range from a news aggregator app to digital television infrastructure and the potential content manipulation that might occur from that. Finally, there's the dissemination of Chinese media governance norms, which often occurs through trainings that emphasize the Chinese way of doing or regulating journalism. 
And I think obviously the more concerning ones would be censorship and disinformation because they're harder to track and often have very direct impact. Propaganda is often a lot of public diplomacy, though it is interesting to see what kind of narratives are being pushed by the Chinese state and the extent to which resources are expended on shaping narratives. For control over content dissemination, we didn't find too much in terms of content manipulation, although the presence of China-based companies in these countries requires more attention. There was one case in Indonesia where a ByteDance-owned news aggregator censored content critical of Beijing, though this policy was reportedly later reversed. I guess one more question about methodology, right? 30 countries is a lot. And I guess I'm wondering like, why you chose the three Southeast Asian countries you ended up doing. Why not the others? In terms of choosing countries, we focused on ones that were rated free or partly free in Freedom House's Index for Civil and Political Liberties, which is called Freedom in the World. This is because we want to also look at the other side of influence efforts, which is resilience and pushback. We thought if we looked at the more authoritarian countries, we wouldn't be able to properly assess resilience and pushback. We also focused on criteria like population size, the country's relationship with China, regional and linguistic diversity as well. Over the past decade, our lead author, Sarah Cook, has tracked incidents of media influence across the world, and we added to our shortlist countries in which we saw more incidents. Other countries we covered in Asia include Sri Lanka, India, and Taiwan. So to follow up on the methodology, there's these very detailed country cases. There's also the top line scores and categories for each country. You list countries overall as either vulnerable or resilient to Chinese state influence operations. And then within that, you have a, a metric for how much effort, I suppose, China's putting into influencing those media environments and how resilient each country is. So the top line, the first time I became aware of this report was a news article, I think in the Philippine press, basically crowing that the Philippines is listed as resilient, but Malaysia and Indonesia are listed as vulnerable which must be somewhat confusing for Indonesians because they're actually listed as resilient on both of the submetrics, but somehow get listed as vulnerable on the overall category. So I, and the numbers, when you actually look at them, are not that big a difference. But what is it that makes, you know, Philippines get high resiliency and resilient overall, Indonesia get high resiliency, but vulnerable overall, and Malaysia get what's called notable resiliency and vulnerable overall. What, what do those categories actually mean? In terms of determining the overall status of a country, whether it's resilient or vulnerable to Chinese state media influence, we compare the two scores that we have. So we have the influence effort score, which is about the breadth and depth of tactics that is being used by the Chinese state. And then we have the resilience slash response score, we looked at how those two scores compared quantitatively and also made a subjective assessment based on considerations like future trajectory in these countries. So for instance, if you have a country with very low influence effort scores, you should also expect to see a low resilience and response score since they haven't had much to respond to, or in other words, they haven't really been tested by Chinese media influence. And in that case, they might receive a status of resilient, not necessarily because they are resilient, but because they haven't been tested, and so it doesn't really make sense to declare them not resilient based on the lack of opportunity to actually push back against Chinese influence efforts. In the case of the Philippines, 
Both media influence efforts and resilience and response are considered high, but we determined that the resilience and response was sufficiently high to counter the level of influence. If you read the report, you'll see that there is a broad range of resilience exhibited by the Philippines. In Indonesia, we determined that the level of resilience and response was high, but not sufficiently high enough to counter media influence efforts happening in the country, especially given the trajectory of these efforts. I would say generally that this is the first time that Freedom House has done a methodology of this kind. I think over time, we will get a better idea of which phenomena deserve more weight in the methodology to better draw out the differences. I just wanted to give a bit of a salve to any outrage in the region about these categories, when actually when you dig into the report, I think it's quite nuanced and the numbers are are much closer than the categories would suggest, right? So when it came to the, the score you gave for overall Chinese effort to influence the media environment, all three of these were high. It was 37 out of 85 in Malaysia, a 39 in Indonesia, a 41 in the Philippines. So effectively, the same amount of, of, of effort put in when it came to the resilience or the pushback, the response, Malaysia ranked modestly lower at 35, Indonesia 41, the Philippines considerably higher at 50. Part of which, as, as I think you suggested and as, as is talked about in the case study, might be because of all the bad press in the South China Sea. China just doesn't seem to be capable of not making Filipinos angry and undermining <laughs> their own narratives. Yeah, definitely. There's that. And there are very interesting examples from different sectors in the Philippines and across Southeast Asia. We looked at resilience from various sectors, the media sector itself, the political sector, legal sector, and also civil society, which includes academia and think tanks. And so when you look at the variety of responses in the Philippines, I think you would see that it's across the board. And that probably gives it a higher resilience score. So BC, did I hear you correctly saying that this is the first time that Freedom House has published a report like this? And if that's the case, why did you pick... China, like what is so inherently interesting? I know this sounds like blatantly obvious, but why China? So Freedom House did publish a report called Beijing's Global Megaphone in 2020, and that report laid out the groundwork for this report. It was basically the first attempt to log various types of influence and resilience efforts. We attempted in this new report to capture the phenomena more comprehensively and also do a more systematic comparison between countries. Uh, in total, we had 150 questions and 30 country case studies, as Greg previously mentioned. Why China? Well, I think part of it is that there's just been a very deliberate effort from the Chinese state to influence the media environments of these countries. So you see content sharing agreements between the Chinese state media and really popular outlets in the countries around the world. In Indonesia, for instance, the Chinese state have a collaboration with Antara News, which is one of the largest news agencies in the country. And you also see, if you go back to 2013, Xi Jinping made a very clear statement of telling China's story to the world. And in 2020, she made a statement to encourage people to tell China's story on combating COVID. And I think those are signals to a lot of Chinese media and also Chinese diplomats around the world to really push the Chinese narrative out. And part of telling China's story are these deliberate efforts, very concerning ones, to conceal human rights abuses within China and also outside of China. And it's something that they're very willing to expend resources on. 
In Indonesia and Malaysia, where there are large Muslim populations, China has attempted to portray an image of Xinjiang that is much more favorable than international media would allow. They've been bringing in journalists, scholars, and students to China to show them that everything is okay, halal food is allowed, Islam is celebrated. And then these scholars and students would parrot these narratives back to the people in their communities at home in Indonesia and in Malaysia. And in situations where these members of their communities don't take the initiative to seek out other sources of information on China, they may only get one side of the story. Another aspect that makes China interesting to look at is just the sway it has on local actors. In Malaysia, there, ha- there was an example of the Ministry of Home Affairs denying a license to an anti-Beijing outlet that wanted to operate in Malaysia because the ministry did not want to disturb bilateral relations. And though we don't have evidence of the Chinese government telling the Ministry of Home Affairs to do something, the fact that the relationship between China and Malaysia has compelled this kind of initiative from the local government is pretty concerning. We don't want censorship or avoidance of criticism to be a norm in any of these countries. BC, I'm glad you brought up the Xinjiang disinformation campaigns, because throughout the report, you talk about these buckets of issues that have become particularly salient for China since 2018-2019. South China Sea, origins of COVID, obviously, uh, Hong Kong, Taiwan, but particularly Xinjiang. There's been so much effort put toward bringing journalists and religious leaders and, and others for these scripted press junkets around Xinjiang. And I think the perception in the U.S. is that it's had some effect. I mean, that there's a widespread willingness to turn a blind eye across the the Muslim world to what happens in Xinjiang. And perhaps that's only at the official level, or maybe not. I mean, has has the Xinjiang narrative been more effective within Malaysia and Indonesia than some of these other narratives for China? This is a really good question. It was difficult for us to measure the actual impact of all of these efforts. In terms of general opinion on China or views on Chinese influence, you see a huge decline in perception across Southeast Asia. You also see more people viewing China as a revisionist power, and there are various polls that show these results. We don't have polling for Xinjiang specifically, and generally the response to Beijing's efforts has been mixed on this front. We saw some examples of Muslim scholars and students who went on China-funded trips or study experiences relaying Beijing's narratives back to their home communities, But at the same time, we also saw some of them express skepticism. And we also saw that even in outlets that had content sharing agreements with Chinese state media, there was critical coverage of Xinjiang, whether through their own reporting or through republishing articles from international news agencies like Reuters or AFP that portray the human rights narrative in Xinjiang. And on top of that, we saw civil society activism for Uyghurs led by Muslim groups in Indonesia. So overall, it's very hard to say how much traction China's Xinjiang narrative has gained within the population. And this speaks to the importance of diverse media environments because if these influence efforts are placed in an environment where there are a bunch of other sources on the same topic, then their impact is very diluted. One tactic that we should watch for is the use of social media influencers. This seems to be an attempt to change broader public opinion, not just that of the elites. These influencers publish a lot of apolitical content, you know, on food or on travel, and would occasionally sprinkle in these more political narratives. And if you're not paying close attention, if you're just a casual follower, you might be susceptible to believing these political narratives.
We do see the Chinese government funding social media influencers to travel to Xinjiang or other parts of China and pose in front of a mosque and say, "Everything is fine here. Religion is flourishing," and that could be pretty influential, especially to younger audiences that are using social media in these countries. The reason that I was so focused on on the Xinjiang part of this report is is because. We just this week had, well, I suppose now it's it's been four days ago had the introduction of the UNHCR resolution to condemn China's, well, to open an investigation, I suppose, on on China's alleged genocide in Xinjiang, following on the long delayed report from the special rapporteur, which basically confirmed that China has been engaged in widespread crimes against Muslims in, in Xinjiang. And Indonesia voted against the resolution and Malaysia abstained in that resolution. And not to point out the obvious, but like Indonesia and Malaysia don't vote against or abstain when there are resolutions over Palestine. Clearly, the Xinjiang issue gets treated differently, at least by political elites in those two capitals and through much of the Muslim world. Xinjiang can be a different issue to Southeast Asian elites because they are concerned about retaliation in response to criticizing China over issues Beijing considers sensitive. China is one of the biggest trading partners for all of these countries. Criticizing Israel over Palestine, on the other hand, has a much lower cost for these countries. Xinjiang is also not perceived as a core national issue for countries like Malaysia and Indonesia, who are more willing to push back over issues like territorial claims in the South China Sea. On top of this, historical domestic concerns, including strong anti-communist movements and resentment of prosperous Chinese minorities, might also play a role in the lack of public sympathy towards China-based Muslim groups. I will say that sometimes. States abstain, and Malaysia has done this before on purely mundane,、uh, for purely mundane reasons, and could be something just like a matter of procedure, where states have said, "Well, we're not going to go along with this vote." So we may or may not be reading too much into some of these voting patterns. I guess the question that I had for you, BC, was how are these tactics, these influence operations, different from some of the ones that? Other major powers carry out in the region and have carried out in the past. We didn't really look at how other countries have engaged in various influence operation efforts in Southeast Asia. I would say globally, we've noticed Chinese diplomats are more willing to engage in aggressive tactics like pressuring reporters and outlets to avoid certain coverage. Given the financial capabilities of the Chinese Party State, they've been able to put in more resources into multiple avenues of influence. You know, funding journalist junkets, persuading local media companies to sign content sharing agreements. We haven't really seen media buyouts, but we've seen a lot of these agreements where they essentially borrow the boat to reach the sea. You know, piggyback on the existing influence of local media outlets to spread their narratives. In terms of disinformation, it's very hard to track, but I wouldn't say that there are many states engaging in targeted campaigns in the region or around the world. For those who are interested, you can read the Philippine chapter in Filipino, and you can read the Malay chapter in Bahasa Malaysia. You cannot read the Indonesia chapter in Bahasa Indonesia. Interestingly enough, you will be able to very soon later this month.、Uh, it's being translated as we speak. Going forward, I do want to emphasize one last thing: the importance of building democratic resilience, especially given the vulnerabilities we see in Southeast Asia. We see journalists being targeted by domestic state actors.、Uh, the politicization of laws meant to prevent undue foreign influence. 
In the Philippines, we've seen how Rappler, which has done some really good reporting on Chinese influence, being targeted by the government due to them receiving foreign funding. On the brighter side, there have been some promising, quite novel actually, developments in terms of developing resilience to Chinese influence that we should keep an eye on. In the Philippines, the National Union of Journalists released a set of reporting guidelines that emphasized not only transparency and, and editorial independence, but also not using racist language and asserting the Philippine stance on the South China Sea. Indonesia, interestingly, is the first in the region to develop a beneficial ownership database where people can log in and see who the ultimate owners of different companies are. And transparency, as we know, can really be a bulwark against covert influence efforts. Overall, there's still much more work that needs to be done, especially in countries with resilience scores much lower than the level of influence. And it would be great to see more informational exchange on the topic of Chinese media influence across countries in the region. I should emphasize that despite some of the media coverage of the report, I think the takeaway from the report throughout is that as much as China has been pushing influence operations in the region, it's met with as much pushback and that it's created a significant amount of antibodies, particularly in democratic states. With that, we have to wrap this one up. BC, thank you again for joining us, Alina, as always. And we will see everybody or you can hear us uh, on the next episode in two weeks. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Our very first episode was released on April 4th, so we finally celebrated our half birthday. We're so excited to be continuing to bring relevant news from the region to you. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csis.org, and we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you have. We're still fairly new to the podcast scene, so do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us. Michael Kohler is our producer. Our interns are Nikki Arcado and Mike Tiernan. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Karen Lee. And I'm Ike Barish. And we'll see you in a couple weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio. 